thank you. It's fantastic to be back here. I've seen many of you before. There'll be some new faces in the room who I haven't spoken to. So um, thank you for giving up your evening to spend with me. I, um, I uh, have two children at home. My daughter is 13 and she is always flabbergasted that anybody would choose to spend an evening listening to me speak. So I am, I am starting to get increasingly tempted to take selfies with every audience that I speak to just to prove to her that it really is true. But there you go. She has also recently learned the art of, of the podcast. So I now have to be increasingly careful. I think I've said here before about examples that I use that have her in them because she has she charges me commission these days. And she has been known now to listen to things to count up how many stories about her I have told. So if you hear a disproportionate number of stories tonight that involve my son who is six and still can't use the internet, you'll understand why. So I've got two children at home, 13-year-old and a six-year-old, which is just very, it's very bad planning. On a bad day, we can have a teenage tantrum and a toddler tantrum at the same time, because apparently when you're six, you still have those, which was news to me. But anyway, I am uh, actually a medic by background. Those of you who haven't heard me speak before, I started out as a medic and then retrained as a psychologist. I actually now work mostly in my day job at a church just up the road in Hitchin, but I am the director of the Mind and Soul Foundation as well, which is uh, an organization just trying to talk, get people talking more about mental and emotional health. But increasingly, as people are now talking loads about that stuff anyway, what we're passionate about is talking about wellness. How do we do this life thing well? The challenges of 21st century life, you know, it's so full of energy and buzz and excitement. There's so many great things going on in this time in our culture now. But some of those things are also challenging. So we love to talk about how you do those things well, how we manage things well to audiences of all ages, all kinds of different people from all kinds of different backgrounds. So this topic that we're talking on tonight is increasingly a really popular one, isn't it? Again, my 13-year-old came home not so long ago from school yet, so that's the first pound for her, um, and, said, and said, oh, we had the most boring class today. And I was like, what was it on? She said, oh, resilience. So I was like, oh, okay, great. That's what I'm speaking on next week. <laughs> it's a popular topic, isn't it? We want to know how to be more resilient the magic key to how do we somehow soar through all of life's challenges and come out hopefully still looking like all those people we see on Instagram, like perfectly polished, smiling and impressive. There is a reason for anyone who follows my Instagram account that you see very few photos of my home life. It's because it doesn't generally look like that. So as we're talking about resilience... Really, we need to understand what that is. And resilience is, is, is loads of different things. It is about how to manage life's challenges. But if you look on this first picture, the reason that's there is because ultimately resilience is more than just managing challenges. It's something about our human ability for the toughest times and the things that we face that do push us to the limit to also grow and develop something in us that's beautiful. Many of you will look back and think some of the toughest times you went through also were the times that you learned the most significant stuff. As I say to my daughter, that's her second pound. Um, actually, life isn't about taking the easiest path on anything because on everything because almost anything that's worth doing will be challenging. It will trigger some difficult emotions. It will push you. It will stretch you. So resilience is about taking those moments and and 
not just surviving them, but thriving through them so that you bring out something beautiful. It's about, if you see the next picture, it's about our adaptivity and our creativity in the face of a challenge or of adversity to find a way to manage that so that we're not affected by it in the long term so that we can grow in spite of it. Because life is tough sometimes, isn't it? Life is challenging, it's complex. If you look at a dictionary definition of resilience, you'll see um, these, these same sort of concepts in here. The, the capacity to recover quickly from difficulty, something about uh, a mental and emotional toughness, the ability to spring back into shape. And I think it's really important as we start talking about resilience, just to clarify that what we're talking about isn't learning how to somehow avoid all challenges or never be affected by them. When we talk about resilience, sometimes what we're thinking of really is we want to be super people. Those glossy people who you might see on Instagram or who you sometimes work with or friends, although I try not to make friends with those sorts of people, but who seem to just soar through life's difficulties. I work with a guy called Matt. He's amazing. He travels around doing loads of speaking. I think he actually might be Superman. Please don't ever tell him I said that. But actually, that isn't what resilience is about. If you're sat here tonight because you're knackered and actually you're really struggling and actually you'll think, you look at your week this week and you're just thinking, oh, I just don't even know how I'm going to do all of those things. If maybe you've hit a point where you haven't been able to keep going and you've been affected by difficult emotions or things like burnout or anxiety, that doesn't mean you're not resilient. Resilience is about how we spring back and how we bounce back when life does have challenges and how we do take those learning things to produce something beautiful out of even the toughest situation. So what I'm going to do tonight is, is take you through uh, two sets of five. Those of you who've heard me speak before will know that I like five. It's just a pleasing number. So I'm going to, first of all, what I'm going to do is talk to you about five things that you might not know, some interesting things about resilience. And then later on, we'll look at some tips, five sort of tips and tricks for growing your resilience and developing it. So uh, those of you, if you were alarmed by Ali's confession that I might talk for as long as 45 minutes to an hour, which I think my daughter would find very alarming, uh, then you can keep count of the fives and you know how bad it's going to be. If you're already struggling and I'm only on two, then you can always slope off and get some more brownie from around the corner or something. Uh, so five things to kick off with that, that I think are really interesting about resilience and that you might not know or that maybe we haven't, you might not have thought about before. And the first one is that storms always come in life. You know, my kids, if I had my way as a parent, I would somehow control everything in their world so they never hit any challenges. I said to my son this evening, how was school today? He said, rubbish. So I'm like, why is it rubbish? He said, one of the boys in his gang said that he wished he didn't, Nathan didn't exist. <laughs> which is a very six-year-old boy thing to say. I'm like, oh, interesting. What had you just said to him? He was like, nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. But, you know, I wish I could protect him from the challenges like that. Even at five, six years old, the difficulties of interacting with other people. One of my team in our church said to me the other day, she said, Kate, why are people just sometimes so nasty? And I, I was like, I don't know. It's just one of the challenges of life. You hit things like this. Why is life so tough? I see people in our church. It's fantastic working as part of a big church community because I get to do life with, with hundreds of people who I see and get to know and journey with. And you see some of the things they go through and it's just so rubbish. They hit challenges or adversity or difficult times. 
But the truth is for my children, what I need to, to, to bring them up knowing is that actually the difficult reality is, is that you can do everything right in life and still hit storms. We can be so victim-blaming in our culture, can't we? If somebody falls ill, we're like, oh, maybe they work too hard. You know, if, if someone loses their job, or oh, maybe they just weren't very good at it. We can be really cruel about other people. It's our way of protecting us from this difficult truth, which is actually tough stuff can happen to any of us. And, and it does. There's, there's actually a story in the Bible, one of the parables that's told that, that even if you're not a person of faith, you'll probably have heard, which compares these two people who have a very different approach to life. And it uses the analogy of them building a house. And one of them chooses to build his house on a rock, and one of them chooses to build his house on sand. Now, I am definitely not a builder. I know very little about building but we did build our house. We lived in France for a couple of years and we moved back to this country three years ago. And while we were in France, we, we bought a house that needed lots of work and, and got them to do all of the work while we weren't there, which is definitely the best way to do it if you're ever thinking of building work. Do it when you're not there. But what I do understand about building work is an incredibly long time seems to be involved digging holes in the ground, which are very expensive holes in the ground. And I can see totally why the sand guy did it. Because I can, digging holes in sand is pretty quick and easy. And I imagine he was throwing up his house much quicker than the other guy who is spending hours and weeks and months digging laboriously holes into this tough rock. And probably this guy in the sand corner, his house is finished and he's sitting in it with a cup of tea while the other guy is still slogging away. But what's interesting in the story is what happens next because both of these people go through the same experience. And you can see one of the quote from it on the, on the um, screens. It says that the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And that sentence is repeated for both stories. But the difference is, is that one of them doesn't fall because it's built on rock. So the key thing that we have to learn from this is that storms do come. Part of resilience is developing and growing ourselves to expect them, not in like a really depressing, pessimistic way, like everything that possibly can go wrong will, but just because we know that life will involve challenges. And it's true what I say to my daughter, anything that's worth doing will involve challenges. So she, we spent um, our time in France, so she's a fluent French speaker, so she's sitting her GCSE in French this year. She's, she's just year nine, so she's a couple of years ahead. And she came down the other day, she's like, like, mommy, this is really tough. I'm actually really nervous. And I was like, that, yeah, you would be. You're sitting an exam. Stuff like this is hard. And, I, and actually, I'm like, you're, she, her, the question with her is like how near to 100% she's going to get because she's a fluent speaker. But it's tough sitting an exam. Anything that we want to achieve in life involves challenge. And often storms hit us when we least expect it. Some of you will be in positions in your life that feel really stormy right now. Maybe there are challenges in your life. Maybe work isn't going so well. Maybe you're caring for elderly relatives or you've got kids who are in one of those difficult, screamy stages. Or like my friend who's got three children under six at the moment, all with chicken pox. Yeah, quite. Storms come, so we need to expect them. We need to plan for them. Resilience isn't about never getting knocked down. It's about what do you do when you've been knocked down? How do you pick yourself up? Nelson Mandela is famed for having said, do not judge me by my success. Judge me by how many times I fell down and got up again. 
And that's so true. If you think resilience is like, I must never make a mistake. So many of our teenagers now, that's their mantra. They're so terrified of making mistakes. But that's not what resilience is about. And also, if we think resilience is about the clean, tidy people with the perfect-looking lives who we see on Instagram, we've missed something vital. Some of the most resilient people I know, some of the most amazing people I know, are people who are struggling with chronic illness, who struggle to even leave the house. To get through each day is difficult. They're people who are in the most difficult family circumstances, who've had bereavements or who've had really difficult stuff hit them, and they're still getting their kids to school somehow, or they're still just keeping going, they're still managing to do the groceries and all those little things that can become so hard when life is difficult, when you're in the middle of a storm. So let's not think for a minute that resilience is about somehow avoiding all of those things. Let's always cheer on the people who are doing an amazing job in difficult circumstances. And let's think about what do we do when we hit those things? How do we get through them better? Number two in my five interesting things about resilience, therefore, is, is a tricky one. And it is this, that pain actually matters. Again, if I could, do, if I could somehow do something to protect my two children from ever experiencing any pain, I would do it. My daughter uh, did for some time, she doesn't anymore, which you'll understand why in a minute, she did competitive trampolining, which is quite interesting as a parent. You stand watching them and they're flying through the air. And thankfully, at a time when I wasn't watching her, which probably makes me a very unsympathetic parent, uh, she, she fell badly out of a thing and she broke her arm. She did a really good job of it. It was very S-shaped. But... She was in such pain and there's nothing I can do to stop that because sometimes we have hard knocks in life and it hurts and we have to, we have to heal and get better. And actually pain really matters. Again, you, it would be so easy to think that what resilience is about is somehow stopping ourselves from experiencing pain. Nobody likes to be vulnerable. So I would love it. I'm, I don't like to be vulnerable at all. I would love it if the solution to resilience was that I could somehow protect myself so I never had to experience risk or pain, emotional or physical. But actually, pain is really important. Let me tell you about the, these guys on the, the next picture. This is a photo of um, two guys called Steve and Chris Pete. Now, they're, 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 they're not this age anymore. This is an old photo. And these are two guys who've become incredibly interesting in the research world. Because Chris and Steve have a genetic mutation of a gene called the SCN9A gene. And um, in case you don't know the exact purpose of every named gene, I will tell you that the SCN9A gene is the one that controls whether we experience physical pain or not. So these guys don't experience any physical pain. They never experience any pain. Imagine that. No toothache. Never get a, that creaky back feeling. Never get a headache. How awesome would that be? That would be amazing, right? Well, no. Because, of course, their story is one of actually a lifetime of struggles. There are some amazing and quite alarming stories. that, that one, of, one of them, actually, he tells the story of how he did break his arm and he didn't notice until someone pointed out that the bone was sticking out of his arm. Because he doesn't feel pain. So he didn't notice. 
And actually what we see for people who have this condition, they're not the only ones, it's really rare that they're, they're not the only ones, but is that without pain, people struggle terribly to protect themselves. They, don't, they can't moderate their behavior to make sure that they don't experience the bad consequences. And the tragedy of this story is that Chris, one of the brothers in this photo, is, is still alive and still in research, but his brother actually passed away. And the reason that his brother died was actually because in the end he took his own knife because the physical consequences of all the injuries that he'd had were just too much and he just did, he, could, he couldn't cope with it he couldn't manage it we need pain to be resilient in a really weird way pain this thing that we instinctively so want to protect ourselves for is actually utterly vital for resilience to protect us from things, to help us to learn pain and particularly those difficult emotions that we've talked about before at some of these evenings. It's, it's a crucial part of the way that your mind works. So emotional pain is not something that you can eradicate somehow as part of being a resilient person. It's actually crucial. You might wish you could literally take off your own head and somehow escape your emotions when things are difficult. But actually that's not what resilience is about. So what it is about is learning how do we manage those difficult emotions. So for my daughter with her exams coming up, I cannot stop her from being nervous. I actually don't want her to. She needs to concentrate in that exam. She should probably do some studying. So actually anxiety is quite a good thing for her. But what I do need to teach her to do is how do you hold anxiety? How do you manage it? In the moments where because you're tired or feeling vulnerable or low or whatever, you do it, it peaks and spikes. How do you manage that? How do you drop your anxiety level? How do you manage stress? Things like that. How do we hold emotions like that without becoming terrified of them? One of the things when I talk to um, school uh, head, headmistresses, headmasters, that I hear again and again and again is that what they see in young people is a total lack of resilience to a degree that they can't tolerate even the slightest challenge because they become so anxious and they panic. So even just the everyday tests, and I hear it from my daughter, the, the, the kids who are running out of class crying, and she's like, are you kidding me? She grew up in France. They're pretty tough in France. In France, I think I've told some of, these, some of this before. Apologies to those of you who've heard it before. But in France, when they grade your test, you don't get marks on all the things you got right. You get marks on how many things you got wrong. So you don't get like 18 out of 20. You get like 34 faults. So it's interesting, though, how French kids do therefore become very resilient because they're used to being marked and critiqued like that. So here, when my daughter sees the kids who run out of class because they're so overwhelmed by anxiety by a small test, she's, like, she's just bewildered by it. Because in France, they test the kids all the time. So what we've got to do is help people to tolerate and manage these difficult emotions, because actually that stuff is really important. Pain matters. And how we teach ourselves and the people who we are growing and caring for to tolerate it is key, absolutely key to resilience. I'm always slightly tempted to call these sessions on resilience the power of pain, but um, my husband says no one would come, so I, I don't. But it is important. So number three then is that when we're talking about resilience, we need to talk about the F word, the other one that nobody likes to say, failure. Because actually failure is crucial in resilience. Again, if you're thinking resilience is about somehow never failing, it's the exact opposite. What the French scoring system taught my daughter is how to fail every single day and be okay with it. Because it's part of normal life. It's something you expect. It's, 
It's expected that everybody will do it. There is a little question of how much. I think her worst ever French grade was something like 250 faults in one paper, so maybe not that much. But failure is vital, and it grows resilience the more we can learn to tolerate failure. This is an interesting lady when we talk about failure. This, this next picture is a lady called Hannah McLeod. She uh, was one of the ladies in the um, GB hockey team that won the gold medal in the Olympics, if you remember those guys. Um, what's really interesting, I've heard her speak on resilience, and she's amazing if you ever get the chance to hear her. Really fascinating lady. Because their, their journey, their story was actually one that in the 2012 Olympics, so the Olympics in their hometown, the, the same, almost exactly the same squad got the bronze medal. They were tipped. They had a chance for gold that year too and it was actually the next Olympics that they got it but in the London Olympics in 2012 they got bronze and she talks about how just how every media interview they did afterwards said to them well how does it feel to have failed in your own hometown because you should have got gold and you only got bronze and she says how they were just inundated with this this perspective that what they had done was that they failed and what she talks about when, when she speaks on this is how what they had to do was change their perspective to understand that have tried your best and come third is success. But also to learn how they channeled that experience into all the training and the hard work that then eventually did lead them to gold. And the, you'll see the quote from on the stage. She says, the only difference between us and those who didn't make it is how we picked ourselves up after our mistakes. So she says, when you look at who was still in the squad for the gold medal winning team, was it the people who were best? She's like, no, not always actually. It wasn't just skill. It was how they picked themselves up after their mistakes. How did they react to failure? That's what determined in the long run whether they were successful. So if you're sat at work and you know you've got some smart aleck person who's super clever and brainier than you and everything, bear that in mind because actually what determines your success might not be just how brilliant you are. It might be how do you respond to the challenges that you experience every day. I say to young people a lot, we can focus as much as we want on academic stuff and scores and how many nines they're going to get or eights or sevens or whatever. But actually the thing that for a lot of them will be the biggest predictor of how well they do in life will not be any of those things. It will be how do they manage stress? How do they manage anxiety? How do they manage the difficult stuff that life throws about them? How do they handle the search for this elusive thing we call happiness? And that's what resilience is about. It's about managing failure and understanding how it is a key part of success. Some of you in the room probably need to practice failing. You know any, any of those people who've never failed in their entire life? My brother's one of those people. He's a lawyer in the city. Um, and he was really annoying. He's older than me. He was just really annoying. He got straight A's at GCSE and A-level. Um, there was a medal awarded in his sixth form for the cleverest boy, and he got it. Of course he did. Every single class I ever joined, somebody would say to me, oh, she's not, she's not quite like her brother. Yeah, I know. He's just clever. He went off. He went to Cambridge. Of course he did. He did brilliantly. Of course he did. He got a great job. He's a fantastic. He's quite a nice person too. It's very annoying. <laughs> but literally, he got into his 30s and he'd never failed at anything. Literally. I remember having a conversation. I'm like, Matt, have you ever failed at anything? Not the Matt I work with. This is my brother, Matt. And he's like, no, I don't think I have. No, I don't think I have. And I'm like, seriously, you must have failed at something. He's like, no, I can't think of a thing. can't think of anything. He was just good at everything. 
But what happened to my brother was his journey in, in law was that suddenly he got to a point where he was supposed to be tipped to be made partner in his law firm, and it didn't happen. And so he thought, okay, that's fine, nobody panic. He worked extra hard. He pulled in even more long hours, more late nights. He went through the whole exhausting process again the next year, and it didn't happen. They passed him over twice. And he suddenly has to face for the first time in his life the possibility that he's going to fail. That's really hard because he'd never done it before. I kind of like the French system that you're so used to failing that that's okay because everything about who you are isn't built on the fact that you never fail. So some of you need to practice failing. When I work with people who are like my brother, because you come across them sometimes, I will say, what have you failed at? And if they say nothing, I'm like, right, we need to find you something you're no good at. I find things like ice skating, it's very good. Bowling is very good. Quite a lot of really brilliant people are really rubbish at bowling. So I think it's a very therapeutic activity for them to do, especially if you can get beaten by your teenager, because that's a really good failing practice. So some of you might need to go out and practice failing, because actually we live in a culture where we, we see a model of life that isn't realistic, my, my daughter, because she's, she's, uh, she's just turned 13, she's suddenly on, on social media. Watch out. She's out there. She follows my Instagram. I have to be careful. She has actually a much better Instagram than me, which is quite alarming. But the interesting thing is when she suddenly, when she had a birthday, because she's the youngest in her school year, so she's waited for ages. All of her friends have been on there for ages. Actually, most have been on there since they were, since they were about nine. But there you go. So she sat down with me, and I'm, oh, let's have a look at your Instagram. And she's showing me all her friends' Instagram accounts. And I'm like, flip, they're amazing. They're like those things you see of, like, models, the photos. They've got these amazing shots with beautiful lighting, mostly of them doing the splits or amazing dance moves. Or I'm like, these are, you, these are your friends? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, wow, these are amazing. I'm like, show me some more. And we're looking at the photos because I love photography. And she's showing me more. And she's like, oh, yeah, this is so-and-so. This is so-and-so. And then suddenly it starts to get really poignant because I realize that one of these kids she's doing is actually the kid who I, I know quite well. Who's a, she's an amazing girl. But actually, I, I know, struggles really badly with depression. And then one of the other ones she's showing me, and, and I know that, that's, the kid who, that's the kid who has such bad anxiety that she struggles to go to school a lot of days. And suddenly, I'm feeling really choked by this, and she's still like, oh, look at this photo, because I'm thinking, these kids are amazing. Look at these photos. But the thing is, they're judging themselves against something that's just not real. And so they feel rubbish. None of my photos look like any of those things. None of my life looks like any of those things, believe me. But they feel like they're, they feel like they're not hitting it. Because we're in this culture where you're supposed to be super person. You're supposed to have everything and it's supposed to be perfect. You're supposed to have the most amazing job, the perfect house, the perfect car, the perfect children, but also be really good at social action and only drink that milk stuff that isn't actually milk. And probably be a vegan. And you probably shouldn't have alcohol this month, or maybe that was last month. Or maybe you're supposed to be growing a beard, guys, not ladies. It's generally not good. But do you know what I mean? There's always pressure. You're supposed to be doing something, otherwise you're not good enough. And actually, maybe we need to recognize that actually being a failure against those things is totally normal. Maybe some of us feel like we're not resilient because we're measuring ourselves against something that's just not realistic. Real life is messy, it's difficult, it's challenging, and it involves failure. 
My favourite um, quote about failure, which my daughter says is really annoying and I must stop saying it, is the Winston Churchill one. Success is the ability to go from failure to failure without any loss of enthusiasm. I love that. He had such a good way with words, that guy. So we need to change our definition of success here and recognise that failing might be really important. We need to recognise that life will always involve challenges. I love this next picture. This is some guy doing one of those Tough Mudder courses. I'm not going to ask if any of you have done them. That's another one of those crazy things. It used to be if you wanted to get fit, you could just like jog once around the block. Now everybody's like, oh, are you doing a triathlon? No. <laughs> Are you going to do a Tough Mudder? No. I like to bike and I still get off and walk up the hills. And I'm pleased with that because it shows that I understand the importance that failing is okay. I cycle because I enjoy it, not because I want to do some triathlon or cycle from London to Paris in 24 hours or whatever crazy thing it is. There will always be challenges. You will not, if you take up running, some of you probably already do. Some of you might be those people on Instagram who look amazing in the kit and saunter past looking impressive. Believe me, when I've been on a bike ride, I do not look like that. I'm sweaty and my hair's sticking out and it's just, it's crazy. But that's real life. There will always be challenges that you hit them and it's not about looking perfect or somehow looking like there haven't been any. It's about just getting through. And that's what resilience is about. Okay, number four in resilience is a really interesting one, and it's about how much you care. Some of you will have heard me talk about this before when we talk about stress. And the way that we care for other people is really significant when it comes to resilience, and it's to do with these, um, you've got a picture here of some of the neurons in your brain, and something called mirror neurons. And mirror neurons are cells and systems within your brain that fire, not when you're experiencing something, but they fire when you are sharing an experience with somebody else. So when you're sat watching the tennis or the football or whatever, your mirror neurons are firing just as though you were Andy Murray or Serena Williams or whatever it is. That's kind of why we like to watch it. There's something really interesting going on in your brain. But the interesting thing about mirror neurons is how they're implicated in empathy. So when you're sitting down with someone who's going through a really rubbish time and they're desperately upset or they're experiencing pain or whatever it is, you are not just sympathizing with them in some kind of theoretical way. Mirror neurons tell us that your brain is, is firing in some way almost as though you were actually experiencing it yourself. And that's increased the closer you are to that person. So those of us in the room who've, who've had our own children and they've been ill or in pain, you would do anything to swap places. It would be easier to experience that pain yourself than watch your child go through it. And that's mirror neurons firing off. It's empathy. And how empathetic we are is on a continuum. So people vary, don't they? There's always slightly uneasy laughter when I start talking about that. Some people are incredibly instinctively empathetic. We have some amazing people. I have some friends who are like this. They are so wonderfully, instinctively empathetic. It's like if they're in a room with someone who's sad, they can't bear it. It's like a physical pain to them. They'll sometimes talk about it like that. They're, they're, they're sometimes almost crippled by the pain that they see other people going through. They have to do something. At the other end, some people are just naturally more detached. I, I'm quite a detached person. It's probably why I'm good at what I do because I spend a lot of time with people who are going through difficult things and, and it helps me. I'm, I'm quite lucky in that sense. 
um, it doesn't make me cold and nasty, just in case anybody's wondering. <laughs> I, did, I did have a boss years ago who called me a cold fish, which I thought was a little upsetting, but I'm not, honestly, I'm very nice. What's interesting about empathy, though, and with so many things when it comes to resilience, is about understanding what would your weak point be? What's likely to be your Achilles heel? Many of those incredibly instinctively empathetic people, not pathetic, empathetic, are drawn to careers and professions where they are caring for people, which is amazing. But, But they are also quite a risk, therefore, because every person they see, they'll carry that emotional pain. So when I used to do, do a lot of work in interviewing people for posts in previous years, I, I would actually look for people who were more at the cold end of the spectrum because, to be honest, I don't want to have to interview for the same job again in two, three years' time because they've burnt themselves out already. And we know that those incredibly empathetic people are much more prone to struggling with burnout and exhaustion because they're carrying all this emotional pain. <clears throat> the really interesting thing, though, is that people at my end of the spectrum... We're not totally immune from risk. We're not that clever. Because what you see with people who are more detached, more separate, is that the risk is is that that's how you respond to life's challenges. You're not so good at reaching out to other people. You're much more detached, disconnected. So there's... Whatever your psychology, whatever your personality is, there's always a good side and there's always a potential risk. And it's... in, In resilience, what we need to understand is how the types of people we are influence those things so if you are super empathetic be careful think about how you do that caring do you have clean boundaries around it how do you protect yourself from the weight of stuff that you're carrying if you're the other end be careful how do you connect with other people how do you make sure you do actually have a good supportive friendship network around you we have to think about the way that we care And then five, finally, is therefore this question, this bigger question about who are you? I don't know, you see, as a psychologist, one of my favourite things to make me grumpy is when someone circulates the latest personality quiz on Facebook. I'm like, oh yes, here we go. What sort of person am I? And I rant about how unreliable most of them are and how they haven't had sufficient testing and blah, blah, blah. And everybody's like, oh, shut up. And they're just filling them out to find out which Star Wars character they'd be or (laughs) what colour reflects their personality better or whatever it is. And my boss, Matt, who I work with, we do a lot of speaking and stuff together. And we have a friendly rivalry when it comes to personality tests because he just loves them. They're marvellous. He just loves nothing better when we're training leaders than to get out the latest personality thing. And I'm like, oh, here we go again. But actually, genuinely, the, the power of those sorts of personality things is, do they help you understand yourself better? So they vary in how good they are, but I won't do the whole rant about it. But actually, do they help you understand you? Do they help you understand how you react and respond to the world around you? Do they help you become more self-aware? Because resilience is about understanding yourself. It's no good understanding how your best friend can become more resilient if you're totally different to them. And some people I speak to, they say, well, I've tried uh, relaxation classes and I've tried hot bars and I've tried all this stuff and it's not helping manage my stress. And I'm like, no, because that's not your thing. Maybe it works for the friend who suggested it to you, but that you're, maybe you're just a different type of person. I would say when I speak on stress, my husband, if he's stressed out and I put him in a hot bath, he just lies there thinking about all the things he wishes he was doing. It doesn't help him at all. He gets very stressed. So we have to understand ourselves so that we can care for ourselves and nurture ourselves. When you're going through difficult stuff, 
Your job is not to beat yourself up with it. It is to self-nurture well. Again, parents in the room, what's one of our biggest challenges as we are growing our children, and particularly our teenagers? We can't protect them from rubbish, but we can help them learn how to manage it. How do you look after yourself when you've had a rubbish day? When you did do really badly on the test or the friend did tell you that they wished you didn't exist or whatever it is, how do you manage that? What do you do when you've had a rubbish day? And is that the sort of lesson that you'd want your teenager to learn from you? And sometimes the best thing we can do for ourselves in resilience is almost stepping out of ourselves and thinking, well, if this were a friend, what would I advise them to do? Because sometimes we give much better advice to everybody else than we give to ourselves. So think about who you are. There are some various really interesting personality variables that affect resilience. So the classic introversion, extroversion one, which in personality terms is the one that comes up in the the most of the different personality models. Introversion, extroversion is on several of them because it is a very common descriptor of the way that human beings are. And it's to do with kind of like what's your base level of activation in your brain. So psychologists, we talk about arousal, but we don't mean the exciting kind. I would definitely say that to my husband. Don't get excited. I'm just talking about how active your brain is. And the idea is, is that introverts and extroverts have a different baseline of arousal. So extroverts have quite a low baseline. So they love stimulation, drama, fuss, noise, people, because it makes them feel alive. Introverts, we're already feeling alive, thank you very much. (laughs) Actually, we would really rather that you all just went away right now. I have two children who are both quite introverted, but my husband's family are massive extroverts. I remember, there's just a total bewilderment from uh, my husband's parents around how my daughter responds to things. He's like, do you think she's a bit of a hermit? I'm like, no, I think she's just an introvert. I think she'd had enough by now. My son, who is a massive introvert, when he, when he had his party, he's, he's very social, but I said, how many people are you having to your party thinking secretly, don't invite the whole class, don't invite the whole class? And he just said, I is having six because that is enough. And I was like, oh, we are so the same. I totally agree. Why would you want to fill a room full of people you'll never be able to talk to because it's too loud? And I totally get that. So introversion, extroversion is an interesting one. And again, it's about what's the positive side and what's your potential weakness? And there's good and both bad sides to both. So my husband is the massive extrovert. He is brilliant at parties. He's a social butterfly. He's talked to everyone He's great with stress. He thrives off it. He's absolutely brilliant. But the risk for the extroverts is when do you actually get the quiet time, the downtime? They struggle on their own. My mum's a bit of an extrovert too, and she gets very twitchy if she's not spoken to someone all day. She's like, I just, she phones me up. I'm like, what is it? She's like, well, I don't know. I just felt that I should talk to someone. I'm like, right, what do you want to talk about? She's like, well, I don't know. Tell me something. I'm just like, goodness so when she moved to our area she didn't know anyone she's like right I need to meet people and fast I'm like okay stay calm mum well do you play bridge she plays golf is the answer that's fine that gets her out of the house she meets lots of people but so there's challenges the introverts the challenge is that a lot of life situations are not then they're not your natural space busy places noisy places drama even the stress of work or big deals but that doesn't mean you can't do them so often another one of my psychologists rants so I won't do it but is when people misunderstand introversion for shyness social anxiety they are totally different things you can be a very sociable person and still be quite an introvert 
But it does mean the introverts need to find time, headspace, thought space. I work with an amazing guy who, like me, because I'm a real introvert, you know, he, he's, he's incredibly creative, incredibly clever. And we're doing a presentation together tomorrow and we had a run through with the, the bigger team. And I saw him afterwards and he just, oh, you didn't, I said, how do you feel it went? Oh, I just, I don't really. And actually, it's great. But what he needed was just some headspace. He'd had no time to process it. He needed to just go away and get a coffee and have half an hour to think. And then he's like, no, actually, I think it's great. I'm happy about it. Introverts, we need to understand what do you need as part of your resilience? So watch out for your dark side, whatever it is. Another classic personality thing that you'll have heard a lot about is perfectionism. And, and actually, I would say that it's not just a personality characteristic now because our culture encourages us to be perfectionists in everything that we do. But if you aim to be perfect and if your personality type is that you're one of those people, then you might be more at risk in terms of resilience, because things will bug you a lot more than they bug other people. I bought a coffee cup last week. It's marvellous because it's just perfect. Now, anyone in this room who knows what I mean, might you probably, might me, would perhaps score quite high on perfectionism. It's just a really pleasing shape, and the colour's just right, and it looks really good. Do you know what I mean? Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <clears throat> And what's really funny is when I bought my coffee cup, because I was, I was away for it at the weekend, I took a picture of it and I sent it to my friend, the creative guy, because I knew he would get how exciting. My husband's like, I really do. Why are you buying that cup? It's ridiculously overpriced. And it will burn your fingers because it doesn't have a handle. And so I'm like, I need to. I texted it to my friend. And, and I got a text back, just laughing face, laughing face. And he sent me a picture. And he was sitting drinking coffee from an almost identical cup. <laughs> It was a very pleasing moment. So perfectionism sets you up for great things and success, and there's lots of good sides to it, but be careful. Because actually, if you're, a lot of perfectionists carry a lot of frustration. They can beat themselves up if they don't feel they've achieved the level. Most of my daughter's friends think they're going to come out of their GCSEs with straight nines. I keep trying to explain to them that is statistically impossible. The whole system is just set up, so that's incredibly unlikely. Perfectionists, can, you can get caught up into having too simplistic a life you wear. You're either a success or a failure, and there's nothing in between. But most of life is terribly grey. How many people today here had a 100% perfect day? It's, that's the problem with perfectionism. So be careful, be self-aware, understand your Achilles heels. Okay, so five things as we move to finish, those of you who are keeping score... Five tips for growing resilience, and then we'll have a break and we can have some Q&A. So number one, therefore, coming out of what we've learned and understood about resilience is that foundations really matter. What do you build your life on? What's the stuff that you understand to be important that you teach your children to be important? And particularly key things about the, the core needs that we have as human beings to understand the really important things about us. What do you build your life on? So, for example, one of the problem, most common problems with perfectionism isn't perfectionism in itself. It is, do you build your self-esteem and your self-worth on it? So people who are perfectionists, who often are, therefore, high achievers, a bit like my brother, actually, it's so easy as you grow up that part of your self-identity becomes, I am the person who always succeeds in everything. And what that means is that when you do fail, apart from the fact that it's a shock because you've never had it happen before, it also it knocks out in the most basic way something really important about what you understood about yourself. 
your self-identity, your self-worth, your value. So build your life on things that are solid. Things like where do you get your sense of value from, that you are a valuable human being. It isn't because you're, you're clever or you've achieved great things or because your Instagram account is just amazing and you have thousands of followers. You're valuable just because you're a unique human being. There is nobody else exactly the same as you, people old enough in the room. Remember the Chesney Hawk song? Yeah, yeah. Oh, somebody's singing. I like that. Okay, good. No one can do the job of being you as well as you can. I've misquoted it. Go and look it up on Spotify later. You'll love it. One of my favorite things to do as a parent is to torment my daughter by making her listen to 80s and 90s music. It's like physical pain. She can't stand it. Anyway, so you're valuable because you're unique. Know that you're loved. But we value the friendships and the relationships that we have where we're accepted and valued. But to do that, we have to make ourselves vulnerable enough. We have to be able to give out enough to other people that we let them love us. And that's hard to do sometimes in our culture, in our society today. We know that isolation is a huge problem. Do you have people who you know that even on your most rubbish day where you've really messed up, that they still think you're amazing? That, that's valuable stuff. Do you know your significance in the world? Not because you've pulled off something amazing or the last report you wrote was brilliant or because your kids are perfect, but just because you're significant because the world wouldn't be as good a place without you in it. If I replaced you tomorrow with a robot that could mimic exactly you but just wasn't you, would your nearest and dearest say that was okay? No, of course they wouldn't, because it wouldn't be you. You matter, you're significant. So we build our lives on those things, not the perfectionism, not the flimsy things. If you build your whole life on the fact you're beautiful because you're lucky enough to be really beautiful, great. But what happens when you get old? Because we don't all stay looking the same forever. Ladies in the room, it's all fine till you have children, and then it's just a disaster after that. <laughs> So there are things that our world tells us that we should build our life on that are flimsy, that are risky. It's like building a house of cards. Never mind a storm, one puff of wind and the whole thing could come down. So be careful what you build your life on. Number two <clears throat> is that we have to understand <clears throat> that our emotions are not always telling us the truth. So the job of your emotions is to warn you that significant stuff might be happening. They don't always get it right. So when my daughter feels really anxious about her French exam, the honest truth is the last practice paper she did, she got 100%. She does not actually need to feel anxious. Like I said, I'm glad she did. If you're listening to this, Leah, you should feel a little bit anxious. Please keep studying. If she takes that emotion and says, well, because I'm feeling anxious, I'm definitely going to fail, she's misinterpreted. The emotion is telling her it's important that it matters to her. And that's a good thing. Emotions are there for a reason, but they're not supposed to be truth. If we treat them as they were their truth, we've promoted them to a position beyond where they were ever supposed to be. One of the biggest lies that your emotions can ever tell you is that you're not in control of them. And actually, emotions can feel out of control and they can feel really scary, but we can learn to control them. And when things are really tough and our emotions are firing off all over the place, that can be incredibly frightening because it feels like you're out of control. But, but things will settle and with good support and with sometimes some therapy or some, some medical intervention, you can get back in control of those things. Things will calm down. The power and the force of your emotions can feel frightening, but it doesn't mean that you're not in control. 
So remember, those of you who've heard me talk before, you'll recognise the diagram on the screen here. That I like to talk about emotions. It's a bit like striking a match. They are your brain's way of grabbing your attention when something significant might be going on. And then setting off this coordinated combination of responses, physiologically, physically, cognitively, to put you in the best possible place to react if you need to. So you'll have heard of the fight or flight response. Do you need to fight something? Do you need to run away? But sometimes they go off too often. It's, I say that emotions, particularly anxiety, but emotions in general are like smoke alarms that you have in your house. But I bet the reason most of us in the room, hopefully all of us, that your smoke alarm went off last wasn't because your house was burning down. Sometimes they go off too frequently. They go off every time you put the grill on or just because someone's making toast. And sometimes with our emotions, what we need to do is recognise that they're firing off more than they need to, that they've become hyper-reactive because we're in a time of stress or difficulty. Or we've experienced something like a bereavement that puts your brain on red alert because everything has changed. And that means that for a period of time, your emotions are much more easily triggered. So we need to know they're not always truth and understand how to manage them. So you may feel guilty, but you might not be. You may feel stupid, but that doesn't mean that you are. Separate the two things in your mind. And we can't, just catch yourselves when you say it. When you're saying, I am such an idiot, I feel like such an idiot. doesn't mean I am. It's a very subtle difference, but it's an important one. Number three, therefore, is that our instincts when we manage those difficult emotions are not always helpful. Sometimes in the moments in life where we most need to be calm and controlled, our emotions let us down. I remember many years ago, my father had to get my grandmother back on the train to Swansea. We were living in Cheshire at the time. And my mum and I were out, so she said to my dad, she's like, right, Brian, that was my dad's name. She's like, Brian, you need to get my mother on the train. It's very simple. You take her down to cruise station. You put her on the train. It's all fine. No problem. We've been out for our day. We get back from our day out. And my dad is literally dancing on the end of the drive. He stood out in the rain. He's like this. Like, and he didn't even let us get on the drive. He's like running over and he's tapping at the window. My mother's like winding the window down because it was a long time ago. So old car. Winding the window. She's like, what are you doing? He's like, I've lost your mother. <laughs> She's like, What? He's like, I've lost your mother. He's like, what do you mean you've lost my mother? He said, I put her on the wrong train. <laughs> so she's like, oh, you idiot. Well, what did you do? He's like, nothing. She's like, well, when was this? He's like, well, it was about three hours ago. She's like, well, what do you mean you've done nothing? Where was it going? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> so what he'd done is he thought they were going to miss the train and he was in such a rush and in a panic. He'd sort of thrust my then 80-year-old grandmother onto the train with her bags, put them on, thrown himself off the train, waved it off, and then the Swansea train came into the station. And he's so filled with horror that he just went home and presumably danced on the end of the drive for three hours until we came home. There's a happy ending. <laughs> because the, the train guards were amazing and managed to work out which train she was likely to be on and went up and down the train until they found her. And, and then, actually, it was a long time ago, but they were amazing. They took her off the train and they put her on the right train and made sure she got home. Anyway, sometimes when you most need to think calmly, your emotions... Uh, they lead you to act in ways that aren't so helpful. So anxiety is a classic one. You need to think coolly and calmly and actually you're just freaking out. When we're anxious, we run away, we avoid things and actually we think that's going to make it better but it makes us more frightened in the long run. It, it blows the anxiety up into a big deal. If you're interested in anxiety, there's a talk that I've done for one of these evenings on anxiety. See if you can get hold of it, because um, I talk about that in lots more detail. Everything is scary when you're running away from it. 
Some of you tonight, the one step that you need to do to be more resilient is turn around and face the thing that's scaring you because it probably isn't as scary as it feels once you face up to it. Instincts that tell us to hide, to isolate. We've just got new kittens, so I had to get a kitten picture in. That's not actually one of my kittens. They're mostly just climbing up my trouser legs. If you look closer at my jeans, you'll see that I have loads of pulls on my jeans because my kittens do think I'm a tree, and they just climb up my trouser legs. But anyway, it's my gratuitous kitten picture. The instinct to hide, to isolate yourself, is, is one that people often struggle with but is very rarely helpful if you're going through a difficult time. Some people instinctively reach out. Some of us instinctively isolate and hide away. And be careful because if you want to be more resilient, it might be about learning how to reach out and not shut down. So Brené Brown, who's written a lot about vulnerability and how you do that, says, courage starts with showing up and letting ourselves be seen which is a very true why when it comes to resilience. Be careful about if you, if you know that there are patterns in the way that you behave that might lead you to be more at risk because of your emotions. <clears throat> okay, number four then in dealing with difficult emotions is that we need to learn to lament. As a culture, as a society, particularly us Brits, we're not very good at dealing with negative emotions. We don't really like to have them. We're quite internal. We're all very preach. Don't shout whatever you do. You know, having spent some time in France, the, the French love being angry. They really throw themselves into it. There's nothing they love more than a really good rant. And they do it at really the slightest thing. So it's interesting, maybe some of us, we need to learn how to express our emotions more because actually that expression enables them to do their job and to help you to process the situation that's triggered them in the first place. I love the Shakespeare quote, to weep is to make less the depth of grief. Crying is a really interesting one when it comes to resilience. Did you know that when you cry because you're, Im you're emotional, because you've had a bad time, so sad tears, not like happy tears or anything else, or like because you're chopping onions. But emotional tears, when they've, they've measured them, I don't know, some researcher catching people's tears in a bottle or something, what they find is that they actually have in them more of certain hormones that you release when you're stressed. So there is actually a theory that when you cry, you are releasing something of the physiological load of the crap day that you've just had. So as Brits, we don't like crying very much, but maybe sometimes that is actually a really good response to what's happened. You feel like crying, maybe you should just go ahead and do it. Um, this is a Lord of the Rings quote, Gandalf saying, I will not say do not weep, for not all tears are an evil. Sometimes we need to learn how to lament and do that well, so that we can allow our emotions to be processed. A lot of problems that we see with people's emotions are because they're so frightened of them or that they're so difficult to manage that they don't allow them expression, they don't give them headspace. They've never allowed themselves to process what's happened to them. And that can leave you stuck emotionally. This is a quote from a guy called Dr. Roger Baker. He's an expert in emotional processing. And he says, facing feelings ultimately reduces the disturbing power of the emotions, opening the door to healing. Shutting the psychological gates can cut off the flow of feeling and hinder any effective understanding and resolution. Some of you, you feel like being resilient is about putting on the brave face, the stiff upper lip, putting yourself together and carrying on like nothing's wrong. And I know you have to do that. 
because sometimes you do have to just get on with your day, but you need some spaces, somewhere where you can be the honest person underneath and say, actually, this is really rubbish and I'm really struggling. You need the amazing people you can do that with. There is no better friend than someone who you can be absolutely yourself with. So just be careful if you know that that's your tendency, particularly if it's a personality thing, that you might struggle to express, to release to, to talk about your emotions. Sometimes it feels like that's the worst thing you could do. The, wor- the one thing I mustn't do is stop and think about this. But actually, maybe you need a safe space to do that in a, in a good way with someone who will hold it with you because that can be what resilience is about. Okay, and number five, therefore, is we need to learn to relax, to chill out, as my daughter would say. Chill out, mummy. And actually, it's really interesting just how important our periods of relaxation are in our resilience. Because actually, what we learn is that relaxation and rest actually help us to manage more, to grow our capacity. The better you get at resting and relaxing, the, be- the more you can push the limits in what you're taking on. So it's literally like you're weightlifting. You're learning how to lift heavier stuff. But actually, the way you learn to do it is not in the moments that you're lifting the heavy stuff. It's in the moments you're doing nothing. It's in the rest periods. So you can grow your capacity. And resilience in terms of relaxation is about two things. It's about long-term, how do you relax? So particularly if life is throwing difficult stuff at you, what are your regular rhythms, your routines? What's your pattern of living that helps you with relaxation? But it's also about in the moment... How do you deal with what's just happened? How do you recover? So you've just had a really stressful work meeting. What do you do? Do you go back to your desk and just carry on with your day? Or do you just go for a quick walk down, down, down the road to get a coffee and walk back? And something as small as that could be the thing that makes a difference between your being able to be resilient or not. And I often say to people, particularly the perfectionists, you know what, it's not the big things that will kill you emotionally. It's the little things that you put the pressure on yourself for. It's thinking, well, maybe I could also do this one small extra thing. Or actually, I must just get on with that email. Do you know what? Take a break. Sometimes five minutes outside in the fresh air will transform your resilience. And building those sorts of things into your life is incredibly important. We have to understand that where stress is concerned, if you think of a 0 to 10 scale... Your stress level is on the same physiological system as emotions like anxiety and anger. So if your baseline is already at eight, then something that would push you one step up on that thing pushes you immediately into the red zone. And you'll find then that your emotions start to become triggered much more easily, that you struggle to manage them, that you're reacting and doing things that aren't helpful. You're going to make things a lot worse. And so resilience sometimes is about dropping the overall baseline. So, so many people say to me, I am so busy. I'm so stressed out. There's absolutely no way I can stop. They say, no, no, I've got to care for my daughter who's got additional needs or my mum who's not well or, or whatever it was. I've got this job. And I'm like, no, no, that's why you must rest. Because the daughter with additional needs or the mum or the job or whatever is still going to be there tomorrow. But you're going to be knackered. So actually, the times in your week when you do nothing might be the most important times in terms of resilience because they enable you to keep going. 